What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Murtada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate. This is your host, Murtada El Fadl. After many months' absence, the podcast is back for a final season. We will discuss all the Kate Blanchett films we haven't gotten to so far. And in addition, Kate has decided to give us not one, but two movies this holiday season. I will be discussing Don't Look Up in a couple of weeks, give people a chance to get to it on Netflix. But today, I'm very excited to delve into Nightmare Alley, which opened in the U.S. this Friday and will hopefully be available in other places so everybody listening will have access to it. And for this conversation, I'm very excited to welcome, for the first time on Sundays with Kate, film critic Layla Latif. Layla, welcome. Hi. Excited to be here to talk about one of the greats. But yes, so, yes, that's just one of the greats with one of the greats. <laughs> thank you so much, Layla. Um, and and what an amazing, and what an amazing time in Clay Blanchett's career. Like those two films that you mentioned, like could not be more different. Yes, very very different. And for them to come out at the same time, I think COVID had something to do with this because Nightmare Alley started shooting before it was probably scheduled for last year. But it is fun to have both of them at the same time and like you said such different roles and such different movies yeah um it's it's always so nice where there's that tradition we you know where people actresses used to kind of disappear at the age of 40 and then like nowadays you get someone like a Kate Blanchett who just seems to be doing her best work like yeah you know later on in her career just think it's so amazing when you think of like um actresses just like 10 20 years ago before where they sort of hit 40 and they'd um you know kind of disappear and their careers would be over and now she's in her early 50s and like not only is she doing such amazing work but she's still you know an object of desire in a lot of these Mm -hmm. films which is just you know it's it's very encouraging yeah I love that you said object of desire because I was thinking about um a you know, Meryl Streep is maybe 20 years, 25 years older than Kate, something like that. Um, but mm-hmm. I remember this interview she gave that when she turned 40, for two years, all the roles she was offered were witches. Um, oh, and, so, and so she stopped working a while until she was able to like, find other roles. But then, so it's, it's great that, that Kate is at 50, finding these roles, like to your point, where in both these movies, she plays a very seductive, desirable woman and her age is not an issue at all. In fact, it's not mentioned how old um, neither of these characters are. I I believe she's actually older than her leading men. Yes. In in both, which is... In both cases. Must be horrifying for Leonardo DiCaprio. We know he does. (laughs) He's not interested normally like post-23, is he? (laughs) yeah I know right everyone's looking great regardless yeah and yes everything looks great everyone looks great and everything Mm -hmm. in this movie looks great like one of the things that really sort of jumps at you in Nightmare Alley is that the look is great the production design the cinematography the costumes everything is so beautiful and gorgeous and lush to look at um but before we delve deep let me just um set up the movie so 
the film is directed by Guillermo del Toro, who wrote the screenplay um, with Kim Morgan, which they both adapted from the novel by William Lindsay Gresham. It is about an ambitious carny, that's Bradley Cooper, who has a talent for manipulating people. I'm getting this from IMDb. Um, About right. (laughs) IMDb says, an ambitious carny with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words, hooks up with a female psychiatrist, that's our Kate, who is even more dangerous than he is. And so the story is basically two parts. Um, The first part takes place in a carnival. That's where... um, Bradley Cooper as Stan Carlyle appears out of nowhere. He has a shady past because it's the, the film starts with him sort of trying to bury a corpse. No, mm-hmm. this is not a spoiler. This happens literally in the first second of the movie. Um, yeah. So, and then he goes and, be, and integrates himself into this carnival that has a lot of characters from Tony Collette to Willem Dafoe to David Strasserin to Rooney Mara. They're all people who work at the carnival doing different tricks, whether they read minds, whether they... Uh, they do other tricks, um, like I think Kunimara's character plays, does some stuff with electricity. She basically electrocutes herself in a chair. And so he goes there, he learns the tricks of the trade. He's, he becomes what they call a mentalist, which is he read minds. And that's where um, Tony Collette and her husband, played by David Thurston, sort of teach him the trade. He has an affair with Tony Collette. Then he moves on up the echelon of society in Buffalo. And that's where he meets Kate Blanchett as this dangerous psychologist. Um, she's all noir femme fatale, red lips, blonde hair, <laughs> works. She looks amazing. Um, and sort of they team up to swindle richer, more powerful people in the mm-hmm. second half of the film. God, it's amazing. You got through so much. And I was just like, yeah, I was thinking that actually this film was a very like unhurried pacing, but you're right. A lot happens <laughs> like, yes. because you said, well, that, that's like the first hour. Yeah, <laughs> you got like a whole, whole other act and a bit to go. Yeah, it is, and it's it's, it's just so one of the things that I've you know, I don't like when people see a movie like you know it had its world's premiere. It invited all the media in New York and in mm-hmm. LA. They were doing all these simultaneous um, screenings at the same time, and everybody who came out of those screenings, which played at the same time just said, oh, the first half is slow and the second half is great once Kate appears. Which, you know, as a Kate Blanchett fan, you know, I love that. That once she appears, the movie goes into second gear. But also when mm-hmm. I saw the movie myself two days later, um, I was struck by like, the second part doesn't work if the slower paced maybe, but still important, doesn't set up the characters to get yeah. that. So what did you, what, what did you think, Layla? I think there was, I think I probably um, agree with you. Whilst I was watching it, I was feeling that like, oh my goodness, this half is very slow. And I had read some of the reactions coming out. So I was like, we've been here an hour and I've heard that Kate Blanchett is in this film and <laughs> she's yet to appear. But um, then when it came to kind of the final and the payoff and the kind of way that everything um I don't, I don't want to spoil, but it sort of turns out for like our, our major characters. I think actually that first slower half of like character building that like really pays off, like particularly I'd say in the film's like last final minutes. And I think if you didn't have that like 
understanding of like Bradley Cooper's character and like the strange relate, you know, the strange Oedipal relationship he gets into with Tony Clare and David. Is it David Strahan? I never know how to pronounce um, it. I think it's Strathairn. Is how okay, Strathairn. <laughs> well, you know, because he sort of like ends up in a very strange thing where they're almost like his parents, but then he's having an affair with her, and he mm-hmm. kind of wants to like take over from him. And I was like, well, you know, I think all of that sort of meant that when he crumbles and when you see his weaknesses and the way that he's been able to manipulate and the sort of things in him that Kate Blanchett's character, because she's so much cleverer than him, is able to like spot, it kind yeah. of made sense. And it wasn't just like generic guy gets too ambitious, you mm. know, like this was actually quite specific to him. I mean, I'm a big fan. When I was watching it, I, I probably had the some of those mean reactions in it about like, oh God, yeah, this is slow. But then when it ended and I kept thinking about it, I was like, that that was great, but they are right in that she's the best thing in it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. She's definitely the best thing in it. And the movie does get um, slightly more, you know, a little bit more exciting when she's on just because Mm. um, I think it's the performance, but it's also maybe the part that she plays in the story is just the one that feels more urgent than the first part, which is more set up. But to, to the point that you were making, if you do not get the setup, you don't get the payoff. Um, So if we're talking about Nightmare Alley and sort of like a Del Toro film, like I think this movie is, it's a very, very bleak film and it's a bleak noir, um, even bleaker than most noirs. And I think, but it also fits within his obsessions. Um, You know, he's always obsessed with monsters, with evil and how evil is cultivated and ruins lives and all of that. And this is exactly about that, but also the monsters this time, there, there is no supernatural element. So they are all the monsters are human. And mm. most of these characters, except for, um, I think, Bruni Mara's Molly, are monsters in a way or another. Like everybody who's on yeah. screen has scars, has um, a past, is driven by something dark and sinister. Yeah, God, very true. And I think what I love about my favorite Del Toro um Pan's Labyrinth is like the idea that also there's like a wider evil in the world happening as well so while it's in that um, film you know the war is actually going on this is kind of in between the wars and it's like everybody's still traumatized by World War One, and you know that like and World War Two kind of starts to happen I think in the second half but like this idea of like that there is like really widespread misery beyond like the you know, beyond the edges of this film as well. And you kind of see it creep in. You see like all these, you know, all the alcoholism and all the like misery from like many of the side characters. But yeah, I think it was really like, it was really, really wonderful. Um, And I think Uh, it's been accused a bit of style over substance, but I think like the substance of it was amazing. And Kate Blanchett's character is like the pinnacle of both. Like she's so fascinating and she's so stylish. So let's start there. So I think she is so stylish and the film is Mm. so stylish. But I also think this is, I think Kate throughout her career has been given us these hints of like, she will be the perfect uh, femme fatale in a noir. Like I'm Mm. thinking of Steven Soderbergh's The Good German, which was in black and white, set in the 40s. But that, that movie ultimately doesn't actually, is not a noir, doesn't sort of sell that. 
Um, it's mm-hmm. more like a Casablanca retreat. But just thinking of her performance, she was given a kind of like Marlena Dietrich in that a little bit because she was German and had a German accent. So I guess um, being <laughs> reductive, but <laughs> she gave us that little bit there. And I think in Carol, um, she it's not a noir at all. Carol is a love story melodrama, but just the look, which is, I yeah. think, it's very close to what to how she looks in Nightmare Alley, like the red lipstick that never leaves her lips, the very blonde hair that's just exactly doesn't move. It's always perfect mm. and in the right place, um, no matter where she turns. Um, and and so finally, all of that promise of these other movies, I think, pays off in Nightmare Alley, and she is the femme fatale in a noir that I think. Um, we've been waiting for (laughs) i agree and i feel like this is like a real fantastic marriage of of director and actor and i really i hope that they like do a lot more work together again because it was one of those things where i feel that like his sort of you know intelligence and style but like kind of eeriness and like slight otherworldliness like really goes well with a lot of the stuff that she is extremely good of and I would actually say like Ron Perlman weirdly actually kind of does have that a bit and I thought I mean he doesn't have much to do in this but it's like you know like perfectly good but you know like some people that feel plucked from a fairy tale and I and I think she's she's got that and I hope that it's gonna happen again I know Guillermo del Toro isn't normally the person that works with the same actor 20 times in a row. Yeah. Aside from Ron Perlman, but like, <laughs> you know, I'd still love to see it. Yeah, I'd love to see it too. And she's so perfect in this part. I'm thinking um, of this very funny tweet from Kyle Buchanan from the New York Times. He's and he said that um that Kate treats the films, I'm just quoting his tweet, she treats the film's eye-popping production design like it was all custom made for her to slink on. She'll slink on couches, on desks, on walls, on Bradley Cooper, even on air, (laughs) which I thought was very funny. (laughs) I like this idea of like slink because I think there's like a funny thing with like everything that she does in this film has got like a weird texture to it. Like even the way that she'll slowly move an arm or a leg, it's almost like she's going through liquid or something, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel too much it's actually just like very like it sort of goes with all of like the massive you know the very like heightened art deco styling of it all which is 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 so gorgeous and she just seems like perfectly in sync with it yeah you really feel that del toro is like just delighted with everything that's happening (laughs) with her like he'll spend so much time on her mouth or like the shadow across the cheekbone yeah yeah, absolutely. And I think most of her performance takes place in the character's office. Mm. Um, and that office, to your point about Art Deco, is just so gorgeous. And the, the like, I need to come with more, you know, with more adjectives rather than gorgeous, but it just looks so great. And there <laughs> is, you know, all the couches are sort of all tilted to the side a little bit so that she can slink down them or go up them. And it's, it's so funny, like the way, even when she sit, even when she sits straight, then she will cross her legs 
on an angle. So it's never straight. And it's always like, oh, so are you telling us that Lilith is just lying all the time with, with all this body language? There is something yeah. there. I think you might be onto something. Like it feels that considered. It feels like every kind of placement of a hand is like that level of like deliberate. You feel that they spent, you know, even like the little gun that she has, you feel like they spent weeks deciding on what this gun would be. And there's probably yeah. some like incredible symbolism that I'm not getting, but you just feel that there is a lot of like care and thought in every moment of it. Yeah. She just looks so glamorous. So and glamour is something that's associated with her. So um, if you like Kate Blanchett being glamorous on screen, this is definitely the film for that. <laughs> yeah, she really lets us down in that regard. Even when she's kind of not playing the most glamorous character, we get we get the red carpets. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about Bradley Cooper playing the Stan character. So mm-hmm. I think I... I enjoyed this performance. He is very reticent at the beginning. I think at the beginning of the film, um, because he's absorbing everything from around him, from Willem Dafoe, from Tony Collette, from David Strathairn, all those characters are sort of teaching him how to behave in a carnival, and, and he's just absorbing. Like in the first half, he is not as commanding, but I think it fits the character. But once... Once he starts, you know, and he gets into his power in the second half and he meets mm. up with Kate, um, especially in those scenes with her where they're trying to read each other and they're trying to sort of like figure each other out. I think his, his performance goes on, um, on the next gear and he becomes yeah. more alluring on screen. What did you think of Bradley? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think it's one of those things that, I mean, I don't play tennis, but I hear that like when you're playing tennis with a better partner, like you become a better tennis player. And he, I mean, my one complaint about this film is that I think that Rooney Mara really isn't very good. Um, And um, like when you go, especially in the second half, when you're cutting between his scenes with Kate and his scenes with Rooney Mara, you really Mm -hmm. feel that like, as much as I do think he is a strong actor, like he needs that scene partner. He needs that like chemistry because mm-hmm. he, it was much flatter with Rooney where it's just like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I'm just ruthless and I'm kind of interested in money and I'm a bit angry and a bit kind of, you know, short tempered. And then with Kate, it would be like, oh my God, and the sins of my father and the things that I've done and the trauma <laughs> of this and my ambition and the class issues, you know, and it was like, it you, you it like just became so much more complicated and mm-hmm. so much more interesting. And because like fundamentally this film is about his like, he is the protagonist so it's like Kate just when he's with Kate like those just seem to be way m- more motive to him yeah and I agree with you that um the Rooney Mara kind of doesn't shine as much as other people in this cast because I think the character is such a wet blanket like um she has no even though I, I don't know if you saw the 90 the 1947 film version of this yeah they, they have uh, so I think they have sort of amped up that character a little bit like she or she makes some decisions where in the 1947 version she made no decisions at all she just sort of followed Stan around here like there is um later in the film she tries to leave him when things get tougher and when she sees that it might not be you know things might not 
might not work out for them. She tries to leave. And so she sort of has a little bit more agency than in the 1947 uh, film, but it's still kind of like, it's a very um, reactive character. Mm. And she, um, I enjoyed the way she like at the beginning with all the stuff that's happening at the carnival, there was, you know, a lot of dramatic things and she had sort of a calming presence with just a very warm smile. But that's basically the extent of the performance. Uh, Pretty much. And there was a, a sort of piece of dialogue um, about two-thirds of the way in, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but um, my character says something along the lines of like, oh, I've never, you know, had, had sex. Um, well, not consensually either way. And I was like, oh, my, like that's the most horrific thing I've ever heard. And she just sort of like drops it like it's nothing. And I was just like, no, but this this is, you know, so shocking and so horrible. And then also there's the dichotomy because like when you see her out of costume, she's always a high button shirt and, um, you know, uh, you know, and a cardigan and very modest. And then when she's on stage, she's essentially wearing a sequin bikini and she almost, you know, gets arrested for immodesty. Um, and I just thought that was like, there was like something quite interesting to explore there about mm-hmm. someone who, you know, maybe like performed sexiness in a way because of like a traumatic thing that they'd been mm-hmm. through and how like women were treated at a time where people were quite abusive towards them, but then also like very quick to, um, you know, uh, judge them for, you know, essentially just doing their jobs and, and and being a performer but it's like it never scratched it you know we actually just kind of got one a couple of lines and it didn't go there so I think I think it's not necessarily about giving a character more screen time mm-hmm. to fix the yeah. fact that they're pretty thin yeah I mean I think she's uh, Rooney Mara is always a very internal actor um mm. and maybe with this which was this screenplay um, and the way the character is written, she, it just stops at beguiling and doesn't and doesn't go beyond there, beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it's always a little boring when you have kind of the young female moral compass. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, she has the most boring character, I have to say. Even though she has probably the second most screen time after Bradley Cooper, but mm-hmm. she. Um, and you know, that brings me to sort of Tony Collette, who has who her part in the original was played by Joan Blondell, who was kind of sold as the star of that version. And here, I don't know what happened, but I just felt she she was nowhere on screen, even though she has a couple of scenes, but mm. that, and she has one where Xena, she's sort of a carnival mind reader where she reads the mind of, of a woman in the audience and, you know, things, things are going wrong because her husband got, drunk and can give her the clues that she relies on and that's it I I don't it's I think the part has been cut somewhat because she just doesn't make an impression I wouldn't be surprised because it felt yeah it felt like it was building to more and she actually just ended up quite I mean I did enjoy that scene that you that you described where she's kind of doing the mind reading um but Aside from that, her she just seemed to kind of appear every now and again and be like, "Be careful, <laughs> like, <laughs> like heed my warning." And it's like, okay, like, and 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 it's sort of maybe it's because it's like the source material of just being like a different time. But I also didn't fully understand how you could be this like mentalist who um, 
sort of duped people into believing in supernatural things but then be so interested in like and reliant upon tarot cards mm-hmm. like yeah. I think I think that's possible but it's just like I think it, it, we needed a bit more in order to kind of like bridge those things of just like okay so you don't believe in seances but you do believe in this and like <laughs> so Layla what you're saying is that even though this movie is two and a half hours long we needed another 20 minutes, 30 minutes. No, we needed less Mara and more <laughs> Colette. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> you know what I could have done with way less of? You know Enoch, the baby in the jar? And they'd oh, like yes. cut to him about 55 times. And I was like, I get it. It's horrible. <laughs> yes. And yes, I agree with you. That was kind of a little too much, that that cut away to that. I think Del Toro just loved that image and he couldn't help himself. <laughs> Yeah, but like, it, like by the halfway point, I'm just like, is Enoch like somehow behind this all? Like, what is <laughs> why do we keep returning to him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so on the flip side of like Rooney Mara having a big part, but not doing much with it, I think there is a small cameo of maybe two scenes by Mary Steenburgen. And mm. we won't spoil it because it's a surprise. But if you haven't seen this movie yet, look out for Mary Steenburgen. And if you've seen it, just you know what we're talking about it was delicious so good (laughs) so good I saw her when we were you know in the press screenings you get like a almost like a screensaver of like the poster of the film and um like there's like 18 characters something written and I spotted Mary Steenberg and we're like oh I didn't like I wouldn't guess she'd be in this (laughs) yeah like more used to there in like sitcoms but she's great yeah she's she's, great She's so great. And it's funny because um, one of the press things that I got says the cast is great and there is two Oscar winners in it. And like, you know, as a follower of Oscar, I'm like, who are the two Oscar winners? Because I know Bradley Cooper didn't win an Oscar, nor did Rooney Mara. Who besides Kate won an Oscar? And, you know, I had to go all the way down. I'm like, oh, it's Mary Steenburgen, who's won the oh. an Oscar way back in the 70s. So. Oh, I didn't realize that. I would have. I would have guessed it would have been Richard Jenkins, just because fe- that feels like the type of thing he would have done. But I guess he hasn't. He's a multiple nominee, but he hasn't won yet. You no, know? fair but, enough. So it's Kate and Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> we talked a little bit about the 1947 version, and I think um, this is darker, bleaker. I would mm-hmm. say better version of this novel. Yeah. No, I fully agree. I think there was. Um, in, in in the 1947 version, which it, which I do think is a very good film, um, it's sort of not as extreme a journey. I think they soften it slightly. I do, you know, I think the place where certainly the protagonist ends up is entirely convincing in this version, and in the previous version, feels to like, you know, w- would he? And I think that what happens is that like Kate is all the more transfixing as a presence but also rather than them just do kind of corruption by like a million paper cuts about like oh he's just kind of getting worse and worse and worse this film has got like quite big breaks about like well this is the point where he just kind of loses all sense of this oh and then like again and then you kind of see the way and then well but I think it's very very like convincingly bleak and there's like a sense much more of it's like an ancient Greek fate with yeah. this film where it's yeah. like, this is almost always where he would have been. And yeah. from the minute from frame one, when you see him at the beginning, you realize that's the path that this is where it's going to go. 
Um, Layla, you just wrote a review of Nightmare Alley for Little White Lies, right? Yeah. Now, that was one of the ones. Um, I've got a very good relationship with my editors. So occasion, so a lot of the time, I'll just kind of bags things. So when the first images came out, and there was an image of, I think it's Kate slinking on a kind of sofa with a cigarette, and like Bradley Cooper and Shadow standing at her feet. And I just immediately sent 47 WhatsApps. <laughs> just like I get to do this one guys right I get to do this one this one's mine to review and like yeah thankfully they let me have it and so tell our listeners who uh, where they can find your work besides um Little White Lies uh, so I'm at the AV Club um I'm at uh, Total Film which is bought in print and then like coming up I'm doing uh I'm covering Sundance for Sight and Sound which will they'll be publishing online throughout the festival in Jan Oh, that's fantastic. So with Sundays with Kate, we don't usually worry about spoilers because we do movies that have been out for years. But this is the first time that I have to worry about spoilers. So listeners, Leila and I are going to discuss a couple of things. So if you worry about spoilers and don't want to be spoiled about Nightmare Alley, skip a few minutes and then you can listen to the rest of the podcast. But for the next a um, couple of minutes, we will be spoiling some things. So, Layla, you were talking about um, the difference between the 47 and this version and how the arc of Stan is bleaker in, in, in this one. Oh, my goodness. It's so incredibly bleak. So the final few minutes, earlier in the film, we have Willem Dafoe um, who explains how you get what they call a geek there's somebody who is just like a kind of wretched, kind of barely, um, barely present human being who they get to kind of performatively bite the heads off chickens and eat snakes for a very like sadistic crowd. And Willem Dafoe explains that you essentially find someone who's an addict and then you get them all hooked on, um, you sort of become the person that gives them alcohol with a little opium in it. Um, and you convince them that first it's a performance, but eventually it will like become who they are. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting that Bradley Cooper in in the first, um, when this is being to explain to him, sort of like winces and just like, oh, this is disgusting. And like, oh, you know, how horrible. Mm-hmm. But he stays. He continues working. With yeah, yeah. And stuff. He doesn't actually have that much empathy for this person. And then that's, that's what he ends up doing. And the final scene is Tim Blake Nason, Nelson um, kind of recruiting him as the newest geek to the carnival yeah. and him sort of, what's he, it's almost like one of those sobbing cries being just like, yeah, like I can't remember how he phrases it. Something like. He think, I think he says something like, um, yes, I know exactly what that is and I'm ready for it or something like that. And then yeah. he does sort of a laugh cry. I think it's his horrible. Bed moment in the movie because it's all in that laugh cry and sort of his face as he realizes how low he has gotten and what he's ready to do to survive and you're right that doesn't happen in the 47 version because I think with the code or with the studio they couldn't do this bleak bleak ending Mm. which is in the book but this sort of makes Bradley Cooper's performance just so it's his best moment on on screen in this film. And also it makes all that setup pay off because the ending is so strong and it ends on him just his face telling us, you know, you know, the tragedy of this character just with his face. And it makes that whole first hour just so important. Yeah, 
I agree. And and it makes all of the time where Kate Blanchett was like unpicking the sort of ego of this man, the arrogance of this man and how he, you know, sorry, it wasn't Kate Blanchett, her character. <laughs> Although I believe she has those skills. I think she could do it. <laughs> she probably does. <laughs> Lilith Ritter. <laughs> Yeah, because it is quite a bit of time of this film where they're kind yeah. of like, oh, well, what is your relationship with alcohol? Why are you so proud that you don't drink mm-hmm. it? What is it with your father? And like, also, he's essentially, I mean, it's ambiguous, but I think he purposefully kills his father figure at the carnival yeah. <laughs> in order to like take his place, which is so eatable. Yeah, totally. And And those scenes between Kate where she's like, sort of goading him into telling her the truth or telling her what has happened to him. And he's like also trying to read her and trying to tell her about her life and, you know, saying things like, you're not that hard to read lady. I think those scenes mm-hmm. are the, were the highlight for me because to what you were saying earlier about the tennis match, it was delicious, delicious, delicious to watch. I mean, there was one moment which I think was so kind of like delicious, but also like not overplayed where the moment where she says to him like, oh, but I love you. And he's like, what? And she's like, oh, no, no I overplayed it. Doesn't matter. I've got, all like, you know, you know, yeah. it's too late for you to, it doesn't matter if you've like guessed my evil plan. Yeah. Like that moment where he realizes that he's like truly screwed and this has all been a performance from her. Yeah, it is. It is such a great moment for both of them. And I think the one thing also spoiler that I want that I really love the difference between this version and the 47 version is that the resolution of the psychiatrist's role is slightly different between between the two films. And what mm-hmm. I loved about this movie um, and how it sort of um, divulges the background of Lilith Ritter and sort of how she's involved with the Richard Jenkins character. You know, we don't get that sort of monologue where a character will just tell us their backstory. Like, it's sort of like we get what happened. Like, it's given to us in doses. I won't spoil everything, but it's given to us in doses. And then suddenly when she's talking, you realize why she wanted him to basically take revenge for her on Richard Jenkins. And she doesn't tell us everything that happened between them. She Yeah, and w- that, that wound is so fascinating to me. Like, what could it have been that that's the wound? That, do you think it's, was that a surgery following a thing? Or do you think that was like a, because it's so, be- and the annoying thing is it's like, because everything in Guillermo del Toro is so beautiful, even when it's grotesque. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was a gorgeous scar. <laughs> it is a beautiful scar, yeah. I think he, because Richard Jenkins says, I, I hurt girls. And I think maybe mm. use torture during sex or some yeah. sort of, something like that. I mean, they never tell us, but that's kind of what I gleaned. I kind of expected when she was kind of, because I assumed she was going to unveil something like really horrible when she kind of opened her jacket and it almost looks like a cardiovascular scar. I assumed it would kind of be lower down and there'd be a suggestion if he was like maybe forcing, um, I know like hysterectomies or abortion, like something kind of like darkly sexual mm-hmm. on on his former lovers. But God, it, it could, it could be that, yeah. It could, it could. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it, um, Richard Jenkins' character for me, and it's strange because this film was very long, but I would, I, I would have liked to know a little bit more about what he does to girls. And I think it could have been two sentences. 
we needed some clarity a little bit on that. Even though I just love that Kate doesn't sort of tell us how she met him or whatever, or Lilith doesn't tell us how she met him or what happened between them. Um, I enjoyed that part, but yes, you're right. Maybe he should have told us what he did. <laughs> I think it would have made the kind of horrifically violent end that he comes to be a little, little bit more satisfying. Because yeah. you almost feel sorry for him at many points. Yeah, and this is also sort of a different role for Richard Jenkins. He always plays sort of older, nicer man, and he's mm-hmm. very evil in this. I can't remember a time when he was very evil. He is the most evil of all these e- evil people, really. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's fair. Beautiful <laughs> gardens there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you want to say any any other spoilers, or can we end the spoiler a bit? Um, no, just that, like, as someone who really misses David Finch's Mindhunter, it was very nice to see that actor again playing Richard Jenkins' bodyguard. Loyal Holt, bodyguard. Holt McNally, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Holt McNally. He was great. Um, and as someone who is very, very haunted by the um, face-smashing scene with the bottle in Pan's Labyrinth, um, I feel like Del Toro heard that and was like, we're going to put two in this film. <laughs> Yes, I like that. So listeners, here ends the spoiler portion of the podcast. One other thing, it's not a spoiler per se, but, you know, uh, we'll just, it's early in the film, so I think I can talk about it. There is full frontal nudity. It's a blink and you'll miss it. You can see um, Bradley Cooper's penis. Um, Mm. And I sort of, you know, I had with a friend of mine after we watched this movie, um, he was adamant that there was no full frontal nudity. And I was like, no, there is. You just weren't paying attention. Yeah, there was. <laughs> yeah. So Leila yeah, agreed. There was. <laughs> yes. And, I, and I'm very in favor of this because I think that too long, there's been so much pressure on all of the actresses to bear all. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very refreshing to see a film that has full frontal nudity from, you know, a huge Hollywood, Hollywood star in the main role. And yeah. we don't see anything of, um, we don't see any female nudity at all. No, I don't think. not at all. No, there isn't. I mean, the, oh. um, Lilith Kate opens her shirt, but you don't really see much except the scar. That's it. Yeah. And yeah. this is definitely a pattern. Like you think of Power of the Dog, same thing. And um, uh, scenes from a marriage and to a degree June. Like, you know, and I, I, I like the sort of the pendulum going the other way. Yeah, I, I agree. And I love it too. And I think that's why I wanted to mention it. So, um, so yeah, a big star like Bradley Cooper definitely did it. Uh, it's about time, like you said. Yeah. Too many women have been like, well, you think of like what someone like a Sharon Stone went through from that mm-hmm. split second of, of like nudity yeah. that she had in Indecent Proposal. And like your friend didn't even notice that this happened. <laughs> yes, I know, right? <laughs> I think I think they were just not paying attention because it's it's well, also like there is a movement from Tony Collette that sort of guides you to where you need to look. So yeah, so there is intentionality in how it was shot. But it's not even like that. The internet is going crazy and like people being like, "Oh my god, you won't believe what you see in this film." Like we 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 don't treat men as harshly. Yeah, Definitely. totally, absolutely. Um, I I don't think anybody is going to bat an an eyelash at Bradley Cooper for what he did in this film. Um, One question I I had for you, Leila, is that um, I love noir films and noir films are always sort of like shadowy and dark. Um, This movie, it's definitely a noir story and it's as bleak as noirs are usually at. And it's a story about crime and about evil people and all of that. So it fits 
the noir description. But I think it's it's so lush in its cinematography, the colors pop. Um, mm-hmm. And I sort of struggle a little bit with that choice. I enjoyed it because it's great to look at, but I'm not so sure that it was maybe the right choice for this very bleak story. Um, interesting. I quite like that because I felt that this was, you know, like we talk a lot about like authorship and like these these directors that have just this very specific vision that they come to. So I felt that it was like this was a del Toro film that looked like a del Toro film and felt like, you know, all of the, the what he normally does. But he what he got was that bleak, dark heart of the film noir and of the antihero and of like the cursed landscape and the dark fates that were you so like, yeah, I agree that it wasn't it wasn't your typical film noir, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it was kind of. It still worked for me. I can see maybe for as a purist, it, 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 it might not be as interesting, but, you know, kind of Del Toro's going to Del Toro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, you know, a bit like if we had like a Wes Anderson set. Yeah. yeah. Like, so rally, it, like, what would that be? Oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think Wes Anderson would be able to direct a story like I love this. It. <laughs> Very depressed, wealthy people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like what you said about, yeah, it's it's definitely, in the look, you can definitely see it's a Del Toro film. So, mm. so yeah. So I think because of the movie setting in the 1940s and because it's noir, I think there's sort of a competition between critics to compare, mm. because Kate is playing this femme fatale, to compare her to actresses of the golden age of Hollywood, especially the 1940s. Like, if you skim reviews... You can read names from Jean Tunney to Veronica Lake to Barbara Stanwyck mm. to even um, somebody like Elizabeth Scott, who I actually had to Google to um, <laughs> find who she is, but she was a noir actress in the 1940s. Um, did did Kate look or performance remind you of any particular actress from the golden age of Hollywood? I think like Barbara Stanwyck was probably the one that got closest to me because I think Barbara Stanwyck always had like such an incredible like sense of intelligence with like the characters that she played but um I still felt that like as much as this is like theoretically 1940 or around then like because Del Toro's lens is so like specific and so him it almost didn't remind me that much of like Mm -hmm. you know it almost felt like ahistorical like I felt like this was kind of almost something that was like taking place like out of time and, and place because it also becomes so like ludicrous because like the psychiatrist's office is mm-hmm. more decorated than a ballroom. <laughs> and, like, and it's even, so like, huge. <laughs> yeah. So it was so heightened that like it almost like it, it didn't, like she didn't necessarily remind me of mm-hmm of the golden age of Hollywood because it was, yeah, it was kind of dialed up and so like stylized in a, in a modern way. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I think the look might be uh, reminiscent of the forties because they had to Mm. be period specific, but I think the performance is more modern. It's not like, it's not a performance of that era at all. Like I think there is a lot of, yes, there it's a very physical performance. And like we talked earlier about how she glides and slinks around but it's also like there is a lot of, um, to what you said, intelligence. And I think a lot of um, 
a bit of reticence. Like she is an actor who doesn't always show all her cards. Like I think she maybe shows you 10 of the character. If the character, let's say, let's make a math out of it. If the character has 10 cards, she'll only show you eight and let the audience figure out the rest for themselves, which is what I love about watching her. Oh, yeah, that's so perfectly put. Like, yeah, no, and you know, we, I think people use Enigma wrong in a way <laughs> like but like this is like a truly enigmatic character and an enigmatic performance within an enigmatic character that kind of just when you think you've got her figured out it's uh you know she's three steps ahead of you and like yeah. you, you know you're right you haven't seen the final two cards which is yeah. delicious it keep coming back to that <laughs> word of like it's delicious yeah it is I love it um, and it's great because I think it works with what we say when, you know, the slinking, the slow moving, the kind of physical nature of the performance and that like this character is also performing. Yeah, she is. She is performing because most of her, most of the time she's on screen, she is playing a trick on Stan Carlyle on the Bradley Cooper character. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and also I would say it's clearly not the, first time she's done something like this I mean mm -hmm. with the, like I haven't really thought about this until now but when it comes to the scar and Richard Jenkins character and the fact that she kind of knows this information about him like that could clearly be another film yeah <laughs> I know right totally <laughs> um maybe Del Toro can do it so Leila where do you what would you rank this within Del Toro's filmography um it doesn't break Pan's Labyrinth to me. I'd probably put it at the same point as Shape of Water, which is a film that I really likes as well. Mm -hmm. But I just think that there's so many films, and weirdly there's one that keeps coming to mind called um, what was it called? I Care A Lot that came out last year with like mm -hmm. Rosamund Pike. And I remember complaining to people about like, but this is like just style over substance. And, it, and then something like this comes along and I just really appreciate it. It's so much style. There's also some substance there, <laughs> like yeah. you know, could, Rosamund Pike's hair was fantastic in that film. Kate Blanchett <laughs> looks amazing in this. You know, Rooney Mara's styling incredible, but like there is a dark, bleak, you know, kind of timeless ancient Greek myth of, yeah. that's horrifying <laughs> at the middle of this that I was just can't stop thinking about really. Yeah, and you know, when I uh, first watched this movie, um, especially the last sort of, I don't know, 45, 40, 30, I don't know, I don't know time, but when the revelations about the past of these characters start to unravel and, you know, people start getting hurt really bad, I just felt like I wanted, if it wasn't, a, if, if I was watching this at home, I would definitely have pressed stop because I felt overwhelmed, but I was mm -hmm. at a screening and I couldn't leave because I had to, of course, finish the film. And I was just like, I really want to leave. Um, and I felt like the movie's like kind of, just coming at me with so much things that I did not want to see. And I think that's um, a strength of it. And it's a film that I have been thinking about, like I've seen it, I think about two weeks ago now. And it's a movie that I have been thinking about a lot since then, just, yeah. just to your point about how much substance there is. It's a bleak story, but it's also a story that has such undertones and it does what a movie um, should do is that for me, at least it keeps you, thinking about it even after you've stopped watching it and you know maybe written about it like you did <laughs> yeah I had a great walk to um the tube with um two of my critic friends Clarice Lowry and Sophie Monks Kaufman 
and we ended up even walking to a further tube stop because we wanted to keep talking about it. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So I think it's up there for me too um, with Del Toro. As far as with Kate, I think I need to think about it a little bit because she obviously has done many more movies um, mm. than Del-, Del Toro. And I think like my top, it's definitely it's definitely not Carol or Blue Jasmine, which I think are her best performances. But I think it's it's definitely up there. Like if there is like a I don't know a top ten, it it might it might come in. <laughs> yeah, I mean like a like what what maybe above that. Her Marvel um, villainess was so great. Uh, <laughs> Thor Ragnarok, uh, think, yeah. Yes, Thor Ragnarok. I would say maybe kind of around there, around notes of a scandal, maybe kind of that. You yeah. know, but can Maybe. you imagine? Like most people would dream of that. And we're talking of this as her second tier. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I know. I actually I'm very partial to Notes and a Scandal. So I put Me this. Too. Yeah, I love that film so much. But that is I always say that the only movie where I think Kate did not give the best performance in the movie is Notes and a Scandal, because I think Judy Dutch is so amazing in that film and she is definitely the best performance in it. Yeah, well, that is a that is a very strong recommendation for a film. I might have to rewatch that again. I remember reading that book and thinking when they announced the film, just thinking like, oh, like how? How mm-hmm. are you possible? Like who would want to, you know, ex- you know, watch that? And then five minutes in, I was just like, oh, this is why I'm not a great director because I can't <laughs> see the film when I look at the source material. Yeah, yeah, I know. So but she's um, such an unlikable character in so in the more so in the book. I oh, is it? Oh, yeah. I haven't. I, I think haven't so. Judy it. Dench's character, she's like, she's, you know, horrible. And you end up feeling quite is, sorry yeah. um, for. And I think the film, I think, is more balanced where just everyone's deeply flawed. Yeah, very deeply flawed. But Judy Dench is amazing in it. Maybe I should. Um, I'm taking a little break over the holidays and I'm trying to get some books. Maybe that's a book I should read. It's oh. good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Leila, I want to close with a few questions about Kate, but before we do that, is there anything about Nightmare Alley that you wanted to touch on that we haven't? Uh, no, not really. I think we kind of went through it all. Just, you know, I suppose the thing that like made me happiest about it was like, it felt like a great director with like a really specific vision was just allowed to make the film that he wanted to make. Yeah. You know, it didn't feel like a film that, he had to take a lot of notes on or do a lot of like reshoots to like please a studio and stuff. Yeah. And there is a little sort of a, I think a beautiful collaboration love story because um, behind this film, because he wrote the screenplay with Kim Morgan, who is a mm. film critic and a film historian. And just a couple of, a few weeks ago, they announced that they are married. So. Oh, really? Oh, how nice. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's made me very happy. Yeah, so out of all this bleakness came this beautiful <laughs> love story somehow. <laughs> oh, how lovely. Because he seems like such a lovely man. And you yeah. have a terrible story about how his father was kidnapped. And like, I think oh. he's, you know, he's not had an easy, an easy time. So, oh, I love it when people find love later in life. <laughs> yes, it's so nice, right? It's so great. Mm-hmm. I love it too. Um, so before we go, Leila, I want to ask you about Kate Blanchett. Um, so... It, do you remember the first time you saw Kate Blanchett in a film and what you thought? I'm thinking it probably was Elizabeth, you know, um, which 
uh, I remember that kind of being so distinct because I also didn't know much about Elizabeth uh, as a queen beyond that, that she was kind of around Shakespeare. Um, Shakespeare was kind of uh, around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, and this here kind of like incredibly like regal presence. And I remember very much the kind of end of that film where she sort of becomes the virgin queen and it's like her entire like body language changes and she puts on the white makeup and she gets the hair and it's like the trans yeah. it's almost like an origin story of Elizabeth. Totally. <laughs> it is. It's it is. And that that sort of transformation at the end is so memorable. And I think mm-hmm. that's why she became a star because she was able to do a whole journey in that movie from a teenage Elizabeth to that image of Elizabeth that even, you know, even if you have a cursory knowledge of history, you know that image. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and uh, she's she's hasn't frequently disappointed me since. I suppose that maybe that um, Richard Linklater film. So that was, oh. I think that was more on him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was more on him. I don't think he found um, that right tone for it because that that is a book I read and the book is so funny, but oh, somehow... Okay. Richard Linklater, I think, was not interested in the satire. And I don't know. Yeah, that movie. Um, I, I normally it. love Richard Linklater, but like that was kind of befuddling. Actually. Yeah, it was. Um, what is, so I, I have two more questions for you. Um, mm. So Kate is this very respected actor, um, but is there a time where you think she was underrated? Like maybe perhaps a performance or a film you really like that you don't hear other people talk about as much? I liked her Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator very much. And I think at the time that was well appreciated, but I think it's been a bit forgotten. Mm. Like Aviator as a film, because I think, well, I don't know that The Aviator was like one of Scorsese's best, but I think she in it is so like fantastic that perhaps with like, memory has like just made people remember like did you remember when like Leonardo DiCaprio was Howard Hughes and they forget that like no but Kate Blanchett is the amazing um Catherine Hepburn yeah I um, like that performance too yeah um it's very hard to sort of play somebody who everybody knows and has watched hours and hours of them right and I think yeah. it's such a challenge and she does it so great and there's so many kind of bad impersonations in that film. I mean, not as significant a role as hers, but do you remember there's like Gwen Stefani is in yeah. that with someone and 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 Jean Harlow. Yes, and Kate Beckinsale is Ava Gardner, and it's just like doesn't quite work. And they should have like yeah no uh, some yeah. some missteps, but it's a shame because. You know, somebody just just do one of those YouTube compilations that's just her. Yes. From, from that. <laughs> I, I am sure one of our listeners will be able to do that. So if you do a compilation of just Kate Blanchett <laughs> as Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator, let us know. <laughs> and, um, and my final question to you, what is your favorite Kate Blanchett performance? It can't be Nightmare Alley. No, I'm just kidding. If it is, it is. <laughs> oh, cray. That is tough. It's, I'm going to go back to Elizabeth as much as there's been so many that I love. And in particular, I do like Blue Jasmine a lot. Mm-hmm. But I think there's always something really exciting when you go back now. And often if I'm writing a profile of an actor and you watch the kind of first big star making mm-hmm. turn and yeah. you see 
why it was that this person broke out of all of the hundreds of actors. And I, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it to her because I think it's so uh, her and Elizabeth, just because I think like she had something so special and something so undeniable from like minute one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's a fantastic note to, to end on. Um, Layla, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me today. Um, before we go, let our listeners know where they can find you online um, so they can follow your work. Oh, great. Um, so I'm on hopelessly addicted to Twitter. So uh, Layla, L-E-I-L-A underscore Latif, um, where I post everything that I do. And then aside from that, I'm AV Club, Total Film, Little White Lies, Sight and Sound. Uh, God, where else? Cousin, <laughs> The Guardian. Like, yeah, I kind of, uh, I'm, I'm in a lot of different places. Ooh, and I um, edit a uh, feminist horror journal called The Final Girls, which is like really good fun as well. Oh, that's wonderful. And this is our first episode of the final season of Sundays with Kate. So tune in every Sunday where we will drop new episodes. This is episode one. Next Sunday, the 26th, is the movie you've all been waiting for for a long time. I'm doing a a series of episodes on that film but the first will be the Christmas episode it's Carol time <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at ME underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate and until then thank you for listening